information and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement in the Madison area and the surrounding communities. I'm Lois Keel, a supporter of unions. Your, your, your help, your support helps make labor radio and all great programming on work possible. Hi, and I'm Scott McCullough, a member of AFT 4848, the Wisconsin Professional Employees Council. Today, we commemorate the Flint sit-down strike of 1937 and the lessons for today, discuss the situation in Gaza with South African labor activists, we take another look at Wisconsin's legislative maps, hear from a longtime union activist on the state of unions today, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. The Republic of South Africa has brought charges of genocide against the state of Israel. Greg Jabosky spoke to a representative of South Africa's largest labor federation for South African labor perspective on this historic action. In a landmark case, the Republic of South Africa has brought charges of genocide against the state of Israel to the International Court of Justice in The Hague in the Netherlands, based on Israel's continued assault on the population of the Gaza Strip. Testimonies presented last week over objections by Israel and its leading international supporter, the United States, and other U.S. and Israeli allies. Attorney Adila Hassim presented the facts of the case for South Africa. South Africa contends that Israel has transgressed Article 2 of the Convention by committing actions that fall within the definition of genocide. The charge of genocide also requires that actual intent to commit genocide be shown. Attorney Tembeka Ngutaitobi, presenting this part of the South African case, said that this was strangely easy here, as he provided evidence of military, parliamentary, and government officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, in what Nkutaitobi characterized as repeated open calls for genocide. There is an extraordinary feature in this case that Israel's political leaders, military commanders, and persons holding official positions have systematically and in explicit terms declared their genocidal intent. And these statements are then repeated by soldiers on the ground in Gaza as they engage in the destruction of Palestinians and the physical infrastructure of Gaza. Labor Radio spoke today to Matthew Parks, the parliamentary coordinator and acting national spokesperson for the Congress of South African Trade Unions, or COSATU, the largest labor federation in South Africa and a partner with the governing African National Congress and with the South Africa Communist Party in the tripartite alliance that has held power in South Africa since the overthrow of the apartheid regime and the establishment of a democratic government in 1994. Parks lays out the reasoning behind the South African action. Well, for South Africa, and I think even for the international community, it is an historic uh, occasion. Um, South Africa's government did launch a case on an urgent basis with the International Court of Justice, um, citing the Convention on, Against Genocide, and basically asking for the court's interpretation that whether or not the military actions that are being currently undertaken by the Israeli government in the Gaza Strip do violate the Gen- Convention Against Genocide. And if they do, 
then to take some urgent remedial action to halt the, the current activities by Israeli Defense Force. Park sees Israeli arguments that the assault on Gaza is a just reaction to the October 7, 2023 attacks by Hamas as untenable. So look, we, 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 don't, we didn't support the actions by Hamas against Israel on the 7th of October. We don't support the killing of innocent civilians or by any party. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's clear, international law. But, you know, one wrong cannot be compensated by another wrong. The response by Israel um, to kill, what is it now, about 30,000 Palestinians in the Gaza Strip can't be justified. In fact, you can't, you can't say, well, you kill one of my people, I'll kill 10 of yours. South African workers have joined in solidarity with Palestinians, says Parks. But we've got a very strong, closely coordinated solidarity campaign between government, the ruling party, the African National Congress, which is our ally, Kosato is a trade union movement, also civil society organizations too. I mean, quite a few protests and marches across South African cities. And not just in, you know, for, say, for example, Johannesburg, which is the economic center, um, or Cape Town, the, the legislative capital, etc. But in fact, even in our, so our provincial provinces too, medium-sized provincial towns too, there have been quite a few marches by different unions. Parks looks back to international actions around South Africa's anti-apartheid struggle as possible inspiration for today. A real powerful thing. You know, maybe the last thing is that, you know, during South Africa's liberation struggle, some uh, trade unions across the world and, and workers refused to handle South African exports or, or imports to South Africa, like an island. Dock workers said, we're not going to touch it. It might be symbolic, but it has a, it has value, you know. So I think if U.S. dock workers was saying, you know, pension funds are always the biggest source of investment in any industrialized economy. I don't think the U.S. would be any exception. In fact, definitely not. So if U.S. workers to say, well, you know, maybe our pension funds, whether it's the California teachers' pension funds, we don't think they should be investing in Israel for the time being. Park says that the American labor movement, as acting within a superpower and in Israel's main international supporter, has a particularly important role it can play. You know, perhaps some of those workers there, they, they are unionized, could say, even if they're not, it's fine. Well, maybe we're not going to, you know, assist in sending weapons to Israel, our arms and ammunition, you know, etc. So I think... You know, that's something that can really have a, a significant impact. But I think just a simple thing, just raising the voice, that alone will make a huge difference. That was Matthew Parks of Kosatu. The government of South Africa has brought charges under the Genocide Convention to the International Court of Justice. The court is expected to make some ruling it by the end of this month. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. The Supreme Court has agreed to consider a challenge brought by Starbucks against the reinstatement of seven baristas at a Memphis cafe. Labor Radio has more on the company's case and its potential implications. The Supreme Court will consider arguments brought by Starbucks after granting certiorari last Friday to the company's appeal to overturn a federal judge's injunction reinstating a group of Memphis baristas to their jobs. The seven baristas, who were organizing under the banner of Starbucks Workers United, were initially fired by the company in February 2022 under the guise of a rarely enforced company policy. Unfair labor practice charges brought by National Labor Relations Board Region 15 Director M. Kathleen McKinney later in the spring were filed along with a request for an injunction to have the workers reinstated while the case was litigated. A common remedy sought by the board under Section 10J of the National Labor Relations Act. The injunction was granted by an administrative law judge that May and was later upheld by the Sixth Circuit of the United States Court of Appeals in August of 2023, who found that, quote, the district court did not abuse its discretion in ordering reinstatement 
and Starbucks presents no independent argument contesting the remainder of the order. Now, Starbucks has appealed the Sixth Circuit's decision to the Supreme Court on the basis that the remedial standards offered by Section 10J are applied unevenly across the appeals court's various circuits. Leading up to last Friday's decision, the NLRB had urged the Supreme Court to abstain from accepting the case. In theory, a favorable ruling for Starbucks could have widespread impacts on union organizing across the country, as the bar would be raised on the board seeking temporary relief for workers while litigating unfair labor practice charges, charges which can take years to resolve. Ultimately, the board argues, such a decision will have a dramatic chilling effect on union campaigns, since remedies for retaliation would be harder to come by in the short term. The Starbucks case is not the only judicial front on which management is attempting to undermine the authority of the board. This month, spacecraft manufacturer SpaceX filed a lawsuit arguing the board's process for adjudicating complaints violated the company's constitutional right to a trial by jury after the board lodged a complaint on behalf of eight fired workers who criticized the firm's CEO, Elon Musk. Labor organizations like the board have firmly opposed the company's cases. Quote, Starbucks is seeking a bailout for its illegal union busting from Trump's Supreme Court, Workers United said in a statement on Friday. Quote, there's no doubt that Starbucks broke federal law by firing workers in Memphis for joining together in a union. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. This week, United Auto Workers President Sean Fain addressed union organizing in the South. Greg Jabosky reports. As reported last week on Labor Radio, the United Auto Workers, the UAW, is following its historic new contract with the big three automakers into a drive to organize as yet ununionized workers in the rest of the auto industry. On Tuesday, UAW President Sean Fain issued another of his public addresses to the full UAW membership and to the world, which focused on the organizing effort at Mercedes-Benz in Alabama. Last week, auto workers at Mercedes in Vance, Alabama, made history by announcing that 1,500 of them had signed union cards and are ready to stand up and fight to join the UAW. It's the second non-union auto plant that's reached that milestone in just the past six weeks. These workers in Alabama are just like us. They work for a massively profitable auto company. They build cars for a living. They have families to support. And they want safe, decent jobs with the respect and dignity that's owed to the working class people who generate the profits our society runs on. Jeremy Kimbrell, a Mercedes-Benz worker from Gordo, Alabama, and a veteran of previous failed UAW organizing efforts there, wrote in an article published yesterday in Labor Notes that the current UAW leadership is indeed on board with new organizing strategies. A tough fight is guaranteed as the governor of Alabama came up publicly last week against the union and four of the bosses. Kimbrell was among other Mercedes-Benz workers who spoke in a video produced by the UAW and appearing on its YouTube channel. I'm proud to be forming this union 
with our co-workers by ourselves. Like the governor said, she's gonna protect the employers like Mercedes here in Alabama. So we workers don't have anybody to look out for us, except to us look out for each other. The expansion of organizing came amid a big hit this weekend from the already unionized big three automakers in the wake of the historic UAW contract that spurred efforts such as the one in Alabama. Stellantis announced on Saturday that it was cutting 539 temporary jobs across the U.S. Fain addressed this as well on Tuesday. I want to comment on recent news out of Stellantis, where over the weekend, hundreds of supplemental employees were terminated. In our stand-up strike, we got the company to convert nearly 3,000 temporary workers to permanent jobs, resulting in life-changing raises and benefits for thousands of families. We also got them to end the permanent abuse of so-called temps. You know, these companies have played divide and conquer for years, and now they're doing it again, bringing the pain to the lowest paid workers and blaming the union. Stellantis can afford to do the right thing here and provide a pathway to full-time good auto jobs. But again, they're choosing to line executive and shareholder pockets. Meanwhile, Mercedes-Benz workers organizing a union there have a simple message to their colleagues, sign union cards. We need y'all help to sign these union cards. Y'all join me to sign those cards. We're joining together as one. It's time to stand up, Mercedes. Those were workers at Mercedes-Benz in Alabama, an EUAW video promoting organization of workers there. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. On this date in 1937, sit-down strikes of workers at General Motors Flint, Michigan was in its third week. But not all of GM was shut down. The union had to expand the strike to win, and they did so. The victory launched the United Automobile Workers. Frank Emsbach has the story. Sean Fain, president of the UAW, called the UAW's successful autumn strikes the stand-up strikes. He compared them to the sit-down strikes of 1937 and said that our generation will be measured against that 1937 standard of fortitude and determination. The sit-down strikes and their targets were not happenstance, but the result of planning and analysis of General Motors and their supply chain. Robert Travis was the chief strategist and organizer of the strikes. In this interview from 1973, he describes what he did, starting with the Fisher No. 1 plant. Frank M. Speck reads Travis's remarks. I decided we would concentrate on Fisher 1 because it made bodies for Buick, and if they could stop the bodies from being made, they could stop Buick. Wherever we had people in Fisher 1, we would set up a steward system. There were several thousand workers in three ships in that plant. In November of 1936, three workers were fired. Travis reacted by calling a meeting of the 25 or 30 union stewards. This is a thing we've got to support. Go back in and shut your department down. Shut them down. And they did, and won the jobs back. According to Travis, after the Fisher experience, people began to have faith in the union, but the union still had not reached the takeoff point. After Fisher, the union used its newspaper to headline every attack on workers by the GM security force. So we would play up every instance of security and generally to develop confidence that we knew what the hell we were doing. 
result is that the greater number of things we expose, the more confidence developed amongst the rank and file in our ability to do things. By late January, the union believed it had enough strength to take over Chevy plant number four from the inside, the largest plant in the Flint GM complex. Fisher was already on strike. We had to do something, so we stopped Buick, so we had to stop Chevrolet. My strategy was to go strike Plant 9 because it made the ball bearings for Chevrolet. But while Travis publicly talked about Plant 9, Travis had something else in mind. My real strategy was to make sure all the stool pigeons knew we were going to take Plant 9. It worked. At the change of shift, some of the pro-union workers began to strike at Plant 9, provoking the GM police and drawing them to that location. The goal was to keep the GM police tied up for 20 minutes or so. Earlier in the Fisher strike, the union had organized women's supporters to be ready to defend their husbands, friends, and relatives. In a car caravan of hundreds, they went to Plant 9 in support of the strikers. Meanwhile, Travis had arranged for other union supporters to go to the Chevy 4 plant and take control of it. Travis described the scene. Stooges all went up to the mezzanine, so I sent word up to them. You've got 10 minutes to make up your mind. You're going to stay with us and strike this goddamn place and bring Chevrolet to her knees so that we have decent conditions or you have a chance to get out in 10 minutes. Hell of a bunch of them went out. And as soon as they went out, we welded the door shut. We had plan four. Plant four was a motor plan for every motor for Chevrolet in this country. There were 4,000 workers in Plant 4, so it was a big plant. We had it, we stopped it, and that was the beginning. Travis was right. It took until February 11, 1937, but GM signed a contract with the UAW. The successful occupation of Plant 4 launched the UAW and gave a huge shot in the arm to all the unions organizing in the steel and electrical industry. Now, 86 years later, we are seeing a rebirth of the UAW, using a strategy dependent on the organization and will of the union members to fight. Only time will tell if the workers succeed. The, the quotes from Bob Travis are from the original recording made in 1973 and available at this station. Thanks to Dolores Emsbach for her narration. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio spoke to Chris Boner, a longtime union researcher and campaigner who writes about the state of unions today. You wrote an article in Labor Notes recently that talked about how union leaders are elected. Can you tell us about that? All union members have the right to elect their officers. But for many of the large national unions, they use a delegate system where workers vote for a delegate and then the delegate goes to the convention and votes for a nominated candidate. But because of some interventions by the federal government, a number of unions have been required to have direct elections as opposed to delegate elections of their officers. And I wrote the articles exploring what that meant for this moment for the labor movement. What did you find out? A lot of people were very familiar with the UAW strike. And then you had the UPS Teamsters almost went on strike. That contract was rolling back a lot of the concessions from the previous administration. And both the UAW 
and the Teamsters have direct elections for their officers where every single member can vote. And they had very vigorous debates about their strategy and about the approach to the negotiations. And I think that contributed to why they were so effective this year. The writers, the screen actors also directly elect their officers. But most of the large unions use this delegate system, which in the article, I argue, entrenches and is not as democratic as it could be. Do you know why they use a delegate system? One reason is just historic how labor unions developed. And the other is a lot of the top officers, it's a very high paying job, has a lot of status, get invited to the Democratic National Committee. You know, you're a super delegate. They don't want to have a robust debate about the strategy of the union. And I think that's one reason why a lot of the large unions don't want to shift to a direct vote. Teamsters in the UAW, the reason why they have direct elections is because they became so corrupt under the previous administration that eventually the federal government had to come in and take over both the Teamsters and the UAW. And one of their reforms that they mandated was that there would be direct elections of officers. So it's not something that unions want to typically do voluntarily, although there are many rank and file caucuses at the large unions that are pushing for this particularly at the Food and Commercial Workers Union. What can union members do to ensure that their unions are more democratic? First, participate in your delegate elections if you don't have the opportunity to directly elect your officers. And Labor Notes, which is a nonprofit that assists reform-minded workers who are interested in change of union, also are really promoting the idea of creating internal caucuses that connect workers from around the country to push for more aggressive actions by their union and to be more democratic and transparent. Get involved in your local, but also connect and try to form these caucuses that push for change. Anything else you'd like to add? Unions are far more democratic than most institutions in America. While I'm making this critique from a friendly place, I don't want to say that unions are not democratic at all. That's just not true. In this moment, the time to embrace transparency and openness and democratic debate, it actually makes the union stronger. But it's hard to do to open up yourself to critique and debate. But I think that's what leaders need to do in this moment. That was Chris Boner, who you can find on Substack at Radish Research. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Children are working for less than the minimum wage, and many children are working in dangerous workplaces. Carol Weidel has the story. The Fair Labor Standards Act, or FLSA, passed in 1938. Though the FLSA enshrined protections against excessive and hazardous child labor in federal law, it also established a sub-minimum wage for youth, students, and occupations often held by youth. The Economic Policy Institute, or EPI, described how age-based discrimination is codified at the federal minimum wage law. Youth under 20 can be paid as little as $4.25 an hour for their first 90 calendar days of employment, known as the federal training wage. Full-time students can be paid less than 85% of minimum wage when employed in retail or service establishments, agriculture, and institutions of higher learning. Messengers, learners, including student learners, and apprentices of any age can be paid 75% of minimum wage, subject to approval 
and issuance of a certificate from the Wage and Hour Division. Specific occupations typically held by young workers are exempt from minimum wage laws. These occupations include babysitters who work less than 20 hours a week, workers at seasonal amusement or recreational establishments and organized camps, and newspaper delivery workers. In September 2023, Wisconsin legislators introduced Assembly Bill 442 to eliminate requirements for special permits for the hiring of minor children age 14 and 15. Child labor violations are on the rise across the United States, and in the past two years, at least 16 states have considered legislation to roll back protections for young workers. This growing crisis is beginning to draw overdue attention to long-standing gaps and weaknesses in federal and state child labor policies and enforcement systems. The EPI has studied the widespread use of child labor. Nina Mast had this to say about child labor. We've seen in the past year major and very important investigative uh, journalism reports that have documented the hazardous conditions and long hours that children in some cases are working in some of these jobs, including overnight shifts that interfere with school attendance and uh, lead to injuries. Others represent other violations behind those numbers represent the most common form of child labor violation. Fast food restaurants and other low-wage service industry employers scheduling children to work for hours that are far beyond established guidelines intended to ensure adequate time for education and healthy development for children who are working while still in junior high or high school. In addition to the widespread use of child labor, the EPI also called attention to fatalities among child workers. We've also seen heartbreaking instances of teen fatalities. In this past summer, 2023, we saw three more teen fatalities, one in a Wisconsin sawmill, one in a landfill in Missouri, and another in a poultry plant in Mississippi. Efforts to expand child labor and the dangerous work done by children will continue to be the focus of the Economic Policy Institute. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Scott McCullough. Thanks to editor Frank Emsbach, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jaboski, Sean Hagerup, Janine Ramsey, Carol Wydell, engagement editor Alice Herman, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and the members of IBEW Local 2304, the WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Lois Keel. We also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WRT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark. <laughs> <laughs>